Good morning, Living Water Fellowship. We're glad you're here today. And today, we are going to attempt, at least, to conclude our series of sermons entitled A Journey Into Joy. And it's not because we've exhausted all the material that's to be discovered in the book of Philippians. We could preach there for quite some time, but we're simply moving on uh, from here to another series or another uh, sermon or two. But if you forget everything that I've said during the course of this series, please remember this one thing. Joy is a choice. It's something we choose to express. God gives it to us when he saves us and his spirit begins to live in us and work in us. It's part of the fruit of the spirit, the fruit of his abiding presence in our lives. But it's up to us many times to express that joy and give it a, a place where it can resound and dwell and fully flourish. And so choosing to rejoice is an expression of joy. And Paul reminds us in this chapter, chapter 4 of Philippians, that we are to rejoice. Christian community is the result of joy. And he's going to talk to us about relationships or some essentials of joy within the church family, within the Christian family. We need one another. We're not alone in this journey of joy. And Christians ought to be able to bring joy into the lives of one another. Now, in chapter 4, Paul is examining how do we live in joy in a world that does not always lend itself to joyfulness. And there are some kingdom principles that he will express then we need to apply them in our everyday practices and it will help us secure a mindset of joy. So today we're talking about confirming Christian community, the secure mind, or Christian community is the result of joy. We've talked about the gospel being the key to joy. We've talked about the doorway to joy is serving others. And we've talked from chapter 3, uh, we've mentioned the realm of joy. And today we're talking about this process or the result of joy within the Christian community. Being a part of a kingdom. We're part of something so big that it is beyond time and space. And it's because we have a sovereign, loving king where joy is provided for us and it ought to be evident in us as a direct result of kingdom citizens living by citizen code. Not just a law. I don't want you to ever think that Christ's kingdom and his joy is available to us through law keeping because that only adds to the stress. Understand that just living out his principles in a practical way, in a relationship with him and a relationship with other people is the way to experience joy. We're not trying to deserve something. We're not trying to earn something. We're trying to be someone who is in the kingdom, living like the king. That's why so many people struggle to find joy in the journey because it's 
driven by human expectations. I'd rather it be driven by the Holy Spirit who lives on the inside of us. So know the King and live a life that pleases Him and express His joy. Choose to rejoice because joy is a choice. Now, as we launch into chapter 4, the first thing that I want to look at is gentleness is essential to joy. And if we were to read the first nine verses of this chapter, it, it is a description of gentleness. I think, I think the key verse in this passage is verse number five, where Paul tells us, let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. What a way to live in Christian community. I wonder if gentleness is a descriptive term for our lives. It ought to be. It's one of the fruit of the Spirit. It's a, it's a part of the component of the fruit of the Spirit. However, so many times, as Christians, gentleness is not something that we would be known for. And that's an unfortunate thing. And then I notice he adds this phrase to verse number five. He says, let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. Now, there are several thoughts on that particular phrase from scholars. Some would tend to express that it's in a reference to Christ's soon return. And God knows his his return is closer today than it's ever been. And we should live in readiness for that through the avenue of gentleness. Others believe that it references the fact that the Lord is always near and he's always watching us, so we should be gentle people. Probably both of those are true. However, I personally tend to believe that this is a reference to the gentleness that we are to show and there are times in Christian community when we would like to make excuses as to why we don't show gentleness. Well, that's just me. Or they really made me mad. You don't know what they did to me. And that's where I think this phrase comes into hand. He said, the Lord is at hand. He'll help us because he's interested in us living in Christian community in a realm of gentleness, in a way that pleasing to him in a way that disarms people and draws them not only to us, but to Christ. We can be insensitive, we can be unkind, we can be overbearing, we can be manipulative, we can be judgmental, and that list of attitudes and actions do not reveal gentleness. And that list could unfortunately go on and on. But I believe this reference is to the fact that there's really no excuse for being harsh or rude or mean-spirited or all of those things. Why? Because the Lord is close enough to help us in the area of Christian community. For joy to reign in us, we must embrace the principles of Christian community. The Lord is available. He's near to help us. So let's look at this. Several things Paul gives us. Number one, he gives us a command to cooperate. Hmm. He says, I want you to tell these ladies to start getting along better. <laughs> Sounds interesting, doesn't it? 
Therefore, my beloved and longed for brethren, my joy and crown, stand fast in the Lord, beloved. I implore Judea, and I implore Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. And I urge you also, true companion, help these women who labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also, and the rest of my fellow workers. And this he's talking about Christian community, whose names are in the book of life. Tell them to get along. He commands us to cooperate. Remember, we are of the same mind. He said, I want Judea and Syntyche to be of the same mind. And Clement, we're team members. Unfortunately, it seems that these ladies were not working toward a common goal. And Paul reminds us, tell them to be of one mind. Not your mind, not my mind, but his mind. Let this mind be in you. Let this purpose, let this mindset, let this attitude be in you, which was in Christ Jesus. Work for the high prize or the common goal. Churches struggle when we have our own agenda rather than the agenda that Christ lays out for us. Secondly, not only remember to have the same mind, remember we are on the same team. The team is about the gospel. I love this phrase. Paul reminds the readers that whether we agree on every issue and every item, the imperative is not agreement amongst ourselves so much as the fact that our names are in the book of life. If we ever hope to live in a realm of joy, we're going to have to get to the place where we do not feel obligated to judge everyone around us Judge their actions. Judge what they do. Judge what they say. Judge this. Is, all, is their name in the book of life? Are they a brother and sister in Christ? There are a lot of Christian people. Saved people. People who walk with Jesus every day. That I don't agree with on every issue. But if I spend all of my time and energy examining them and trying to figure them out or trying to change them to become a little more like me. That's stressful and it will leave me void of the joy of the Lord. Your opinion is not nearly as important as your attitude. Remember, you're on the same team. Here's the question. Not do they agree with you on every issue, but is their name in the book of life? Secondly, not only is there a command to cooperate, but he gives us a reminder to rejoice. He says in verse 4, Rejoice in the Lord when? When everything's going good? When everybody agrees with us? Everybody's getting along. No, rejoice in the Lord always. And he said, I like that so much, I'm going to say it again. Again, I say rejoice. Why? Rejoicing enhances our witness. He said, let your gentleness, verse 5, be known to who? All men. How do I do that? Through rejoicing, even in adversity. 
Let your gentleness be known to everybody, to the ones you live with, to the ones who live across the fence from you, to the ones who disagree with you, to the ones who you merely observe at the store, in the shopping line, on Christmas Eve. When you're in a hurry because you forgot someone that should have been on your list and that person in front of you is buying groceries for the month of January, let your gentleness be known. Even then, rejoice. How do I, do, how do I let my gentleness be known? You find a reason to rejoice. Thank God you have enough wherewithal to be able to stand in a line at a store and purchase the gift for that person that you, you're there for. Thank God. There's always something to give thanks for. There's always a reason to rejoice. Rejoicing enhances our witness. Our gentleness is seen by all men. Rejoicing, secondly, in verse 6, decreases our worry. Hmm. Some people think their spiritual gift is the ability to worry. (laughs) No, it isn't. Be anxious. Worry about nothing. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, which is a form of rejoicing, let your request be made known to God. Thanksgiving is an expression of joy. And when we give thanks, it's difficult to worry At the same time, turn your worries into rejoicing, turn your worries into prayers, and it will decrease your worry and replace it with joy. Thirdly, rejoicing, verses 7 through 9, protects our peace. When we give thanks or we rejoice and we pray, what does he say? When you do this, verse 7, and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Jesus Christ. And a lot of people, there's, there's so many promises in chapter 4 that people love to claim, oh, the peace of God is going to keep my mind. And, and my... No, not if you choose to worry. You've got to choose to rejoice. You've got to choose to pray. You've got to choose to let go of your anxiety. Or you're going to keep on being anxious and God's peace is knocking at the door trying to penetrate your mind and your heart and you're not letting it. He says, only after you've turned your anxieties into prayers and thanksgiving will the peace of God guard your hearts and minds. Wow. Thirdly, Look at models for meditation. Paul tells us in verse number 8, Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there's any virtue, if there's anything what praiseworthy or worth rejoicing over, think on these things. Meditate on these things. Hmm. <laughs> One of the reasons we struggle to rejoice is because we focus on the wrong things. We fill our minds with negativity 
and hope to have a positive outlook. Not going to happen. If I, all I do is feed on negativity, I am going to become a negative person. God help us to think on better things. To fix our mind so that we can think on the good things of the Lord. If you think about good things, you'll learn to rejoice. If you think about bad things, you'll learn to complain. Fourthly, he gives us profiles for practice. Verse number nine. The things which you've learned and received and heard and seen in me, these do. And the God of peace will be with you. We all want God to be with us. What are those profiles for practice? We should teach what we've learned because every lesson that you've ever learned is to be shared, not to be stored. Give what you've received. Pay it forward. You've heard of paying it forward, right? In, in the world's culture, it's upside down. Everything in this world is upside down from kingdom culture, spiritual culture. Um, if I were to ask you the trichotomy of man, is it body, soul, and spirit? Most of us agree, yeah, body, soul, and spirit. No, it isn't. According to Scripture, it's spirit, soul, and body. But we, we get so comfortable just turning everything upside down. And this is true right here in this, in giving what we've received. And we're going to spend a little time talking about giving because Paul does in chapter 4. In the world culture, people get. We, we want to get, we want to get, we want to get. In kingdom culture, we want to give. What happens to givers in kingdom culture? They receive. But we don't give so that we can re we receive. We give because that's the nature that God has put within us. We give because he's cultivating and creating within us a generosity of spirit. Say what we've heard and show what we've seen. Wow. Kingdom culture, kingdom community is the realm or the result of joy. And gentleness is essential in that. How well do you get along with other people? It's a big question, tough question, hard question, important question. Secondly, generosity is essential to joy. Gentleness is essential to joy. Generosity within the Christian community is essential to joy. Look at verse number 10. We're right here staying in the passage, going through it verse by verse, so we can understand why Paul says what he says. Verse 10, But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, that now at last your care for me, your support of me, has flourished again. Though you surely did care, you just lacked opportunity to show that. Generosity results in caring. Look at verse 14. Nevertheless, you've done well that you shared in my needs or in my distress. Now you Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel... In my missionary travels, in the beginning of my ministry, when I departed from Macedonia, no church shared with me concerning giving and receiving except y'all. But you only. 
even in Thessalonica, when they should have been supporting me. Now, he doesn't say this. I'm adding to this, just a little parenthetical here. When they should have been supporting me, you sent aid once and again for my necessities. Wow. Paul said, you've been so generous to me. It results in caring. You care. But you don't just say you care. You show you care. Because you have a generous spirit within you. Your generous spirit has provided care. Secondly, generosity not only results in caring, generosity results in contentment. Hmm. Most of us think contentment is when I get what I want. But it isn't. According to this passage, contentment comes as a result of giving. Then I learn to be content. Look at verses 11 and 12, right in the middle of this passage about giving. Not that I, resp- that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned. Paul said, I've, I've learned this. Whatever state I am in, now he's not talking about South Carolina or Georgia, or whatever state of mind that I'm in, whatever place or position in life that I find myself, I am to be content. I know how to be abased, and I know how to abound. Everywhere in all things, I have learned both to be full and to be hungry both to abound and to suffer need. And whether I'm abounding or I'm suffering need, I am content. Hmm. Contentment, he says, is learned. Now this is not on your notes necessarily, but contentment is learned. This word content means to be satisfied. It it carries with it the the concept of being quieted, being at peace, being undisturbed. That's not something that happens overnight. It's learned. You know how we learn practical things? And and contentment is, is practical, just as choosing joy is practical. How do we learn those things? If it's practical, we learn it by practicing. We go through it, and we have to practice this. We have to discipline ourselves. For us to learn practical contentment, we must go through things that would otherwise be dissatisfying or disquieting to us. And then we are faced with a choice whether or not we're going to be content, whether or not we're going to learn the lesson that the trial is trying to teach us. Some of us keep having the same problems over and over again because we haven't learned how to be abounding or abased. How to enjoy blessings or to suffer needs. And when we don't learn, we've got to take the class over again. I mean, you know, if you don't know how to tie your shoes or break the graham cracker on the line to give out for treats, you're going to go through kindergarten again. It's just going to happen you got to learn the lesson. For us to learn practical contentment, we have to go through tough times sometimes. We learn contentment by facing things that would rob us, what? Of our contentment. 
Contentment is learned. Secondly, in verse 13, contentment is lived. This is practical. Paul says, some people's favorite verse, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Now, can I tell you something? That does not mean I can do everything or anything I want to do. Don't you get sick and tired of hearing people say, if you dream it, you can achieve it. That's, that's, that don't make no sense. You're filling people with false hope. I, I remember in high school, I played basketball on my tiptoes on a real tall day with high heels on. I was five foot seven. And I wanted to dunk a basketball. That was my goal. That if, and I even had a poster with a guy dunking a basketball. And there was a Bible verse. Can you guess what that Bible verse was? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And I thought, me and Jesus going to dunk a basketball. I found out that I'm a very good dunker. I can dunk Oreos in milk any day of the week or Chips Ahoy cookies. We have an ongoing debate at our house, which is best, Oreos or Chips Ahoy. Text me whatever you think it is. But I, we have this ongoing debate. Here's the problem. I ain't ever going to dunk a basketball. It's not going to happen. I can dream it, but it's not going to happen. Now, I found out I can actually dunk a basketball when I play with my three-year-old grandson and his rim is about this high. I can dunk that one. I can do it through Christ who strengthens me. But for me to run up and try to dunk a 10-foot, it's not going to happen. That's not even what this verse is talking about. This verse has to be kept in its context. And in context, it means I can be content. I can endure whatever life demands if I'm contented in Christ and understand that my life is not mine. My life is his. I can do it. Paul has just said, I can be content. I've learned it, now I'm going to live it. And whatever life throws at me, I can do it through Christ who gives me strength. Wow. Now don't rip up your poster. It's not what I'm asking you to do. I'm just telling you, go find a glass of milk and an Oreo cookie and dunk that thing. <laughs> Generosity, thirdly, results in confidence. Now, we read verses 14 and 15. He says in verse 17, 16, but in verse 17, he said, I'm not seeking a gift. I'm not saying this so you'll give me more money. I'm not saying this so, so you'll support me better. I seek that fruit abounds to your account because I understand generosity is essential to joy. Indeed, I have all in abound. I, I'm full, having received from Epaphroditus the things you sent to me. But then he goes on in verse 19. Another favorite promise that people love to claim. And my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. That's a lot of riches. But some of us 
don't deserve that promise. We can't have that. That promise is not made to every person. It's made to the Philippian givers. 2 Corinthians 9, 7 says, God loves a cheerful giver and He rewards them. He supplies their needs when they supply the needs of others through their generosity. Hmm. Wow, I don't like that kind of preaching. <laughs> you're, you're ripping my verses out of the Bible. I'm not ripping them out of the Bible. You're ripping them out of the Bible if you're taking them and simply applying them to everything that comes into your life. Keep them in their context. Understand where they are and why they're there. God is supplying the needs of people who have been generous in Christian kingdom. Confidence is in the reality that God supplies the needs of givers. Without faithful giving to God, in turn, God is not under obligation to give to us. God responds to our giving. By what? By giving. I share the story of a lady in the last church that I pastored, Miss Maxine Hopper, one of the sweetest, saintliest little ladies I've ever had the joy of knowing and pastoring. The choir was growing, and with choir growth, we needed robes. We needed, we needed to be able to, everybody look more uniform. I'll leave it at that, but great voices, beautiful church, we needed robes. I'll just leave it at that. Miss Maxine came to me. She said, as only Miss Maxine could with that beautiful southern lady voice past the regs. <laughs> I believe God wants me to buy those choir robes for the church. I said, oh, Miss Maxine, that's a lot of money. We'd been looking. We'd found the ones we wanted. We were going to do fundraisers. And she said, no. She said, God wants, God wants me to do this. And she did. And it was several hundreds of dollars. She came to me about a month later in my office. She said, Pastor Rex, can I talk to you? I said, yes, please come in. And <laughs> she came in and she handed me a letter. And at the bottom of the letter, there was a perforated line. And below that perforated line was a check from the Internal Revenue Service. Now, I've gotten letters from the Internal Revenue Service, and I cried, but I didn't necessarily get a check attached to it. Miss Maxine, they had underpaid her return, and they were reimbursing her the amount that they had underpaid her. And with tears in her eyes, she said, Pastor Rex, ain't God good? And it was the amount that she had paid, almost within dollars, for that gift she had given to the church. Why? Because my God shall supply all your needs 
through His riches and glory by Christ Jesus if you're faithfully giving. God loves a cheerful giver. Generosity is essential to joy. You want more joy? Give something away. You'll find great joy in being generous. It's not an action. It's a characteristic that must be cultivated in the life of a Christian. Let me give you this in close. Number three, grace is essential to joy. Verse 21, there's a greeting to all the saints. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brethren who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, but especially those who are of Caesar's household. We've come full circle. Remember where he started? The first chapter, the topic was the gospel is the key to joy. We're we're right back there. We're back to the gospel of grace. Grace is the only place that we can truly experience the beginning of joy. Grace is the only way by which we can continually practice rejoicing in the Lord. He concludes the letter with a similar greeting or salutation that he opened with. He includes something else, however, and I want you to catch this. Verse 22, he says, all the saints greet you. Listen to this. Listen. Don't miss this. But especially those who are where? Of Caesar's household. You remember Paul's dream? He wanted wanted so badly to go to Rome and preach the gospel. And instead, he's sitting in a Roman prison, chained to a Roman guard, writing letters to churches about choosing joy in the face of adversity. And it wasn't too long before that message of joy and the message of God's grace began to permeate and penetrate the hearts of those Roman people in Caesar's house. And before too long, there was a growing nucleus of Christians, people of faith. Why? Because one man, in the face of what very probably was going to be his demise, lead to his execution. But he refused to live without joy and rejoicing. And he chose by the grace of God to rejoice in the Lord. And now there are saints in Caesar's household. The gospel has brought this thing full circle. Here's what I believe. Paul had lived so joyfully in this time of his imprisonment and in light of his possible execution that many Romans and even Jewish slaves in Caesar's house had become saints. They learned about joy from Paul. They received or experienced the result of his joy in his interacting with them. They heard him personally rejoice in the face of adversity. They saw him. They watched him live a life of joy. That's why he said the things that you've learned and received in verse 9 and heard and seen 
in me do. And the God of peace will be with you. They'd, they'd learned it. They'd heard it. They'd received it. And they had seen it in the Apostle Paul. And he said, just do what I do. Rejoice in the Lord. And then he concludes that there's grace for all the saints. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, verse 23, be with you all. When they saw Paul's joy, they wanted to experience it for themselves. And he said, it's not me. It's grace. It's grace. You want joy in your journey? You want to experience something better than you've ever known? It starts with meeting Jesus. You can't deserve it. You just have to trust him because it's of grace that we receive. Everything that has anything to do with a relationship with God begins with grace. Do you know it? Do you have it? Do you choose to express the joy of the Lord? Joy is a choice. Let's pray together. God, this truth, the entire truth of Philippians, I am convinced will not only change our lives when we choose to live by it, I am convinced it will change the world. If every Christian would choose joy, I'm convinced it wouldn't be long before there'd be new believers who have been impacted by the power of that choice. God, help us as your people to express on a daily basis in a practical way, in the face of adversity, in the face of difficult times, help us to express the joy of the Lord, to rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say, rejoice. Help us. In the name of the only one, who brings joy to our lives, the name of your Son, our Savior. Jesus, we pray. Amen. God bless you. Thank you, Living Water Fellowship, for your kindness and your patience as we've journeyed into joy.